on the seventh Sunday of Easter, also the Sunday after the Ascension. Our Old Testament reading is from 2 Kings chapter 2, the account of Elijah being taken up to heaven. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elijah said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. When Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Jordan. Fifty men of the company of prophets went and stood at the distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it, and struck the water with it. The water divided from left to right, and the two of them crossed on dry land. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to the heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided into, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives to his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descends is the very one who ascends higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Here ends the Old Testament and the Epistle. We stand for the Holy Gospel, recorded in St. Luke, chapter 24, beginning the 44th verse. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Here ends the Holy Gospel. It's the Sunday after the Ascension. So, there we come. Some of you think that you're leaving your mother and father and brothers and sisters and all the relatives back here. Some of you think that. However, good. Do you trust everything that you see with your eyes? No. Sometimes maybe you're only dreaming. Sometimes maybe you're seeing things. This summer when you take a trip on a highway, sometimes it looks like there's water ahead of you on the road. It shimmers. It looks like water. But you know what that's called? An illusion, a mirage, it's not real. Because when you get there, it's as dry as any other place. Now, we remember that Jesus ascended into heaven. That does not mean that he has left you. What has happened is he has left behind your ability to see him. The one account says that when he was ascended, a cloud received him out of their sight. So, I need someone who's brave and not afraid of this. Now, that means I should pick somebody who is afraid. No. This is very hard. You pick. Go ahead. Okay, Jesse. You ever done this before? Oh, well, okay. Can you see anything? How do you know I'm here? Oh, you can hear me. Where's pastor now? Somewhere. Because you still what? Hear me. Could I be on the balcony? What if I went up in the balcony? Would I still be with you? Yes, there you go. 
Ascension does not mean that Jesus has left us. It's just our eyes can't see him being with us. Now, the only way we know this is not trusting our eyes. Stick your hands out. Palms up. <laughs> like that. Okay. Okay. Grab it. Now, what do you think that might be? A big book. That's right. It's a very special book. Who wants to tell her what it is? Holy Bible. Yes, that's what you've got. And the only way that you know that Jesus is with you, even though he has ascended into his full power, is that the Bible tells you. That's where you're hearing Jesus' voice all the time. Now, here's a Bible verse. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's what you believe then, even though you can't see Jesus in all his heavenly power. So you're not supposed to be afraid. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, now someday when God takes you to heaven, oh, <laughs> he'll take this off and then you can see him face to face. Until then, you just believe that he's there with you because he is. Okay, and you can head back again. Thank you, Jesse. There we go. Is he going to jump? <laughs> Sanctify them by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Dear saints of God in Christ Jesus, our text is the epistle reading that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Now, in Paul's day, Ephesus was the most modern, up-to-date, beautiful city in all the Roman world. It rivaled Rome. It was magnificent to see. Everything worked in Ephesus, right down to the city sewer system. The docks, the commerce, the trade the water aqueducts, everything was perfect. And anyone who went to Ephesus could see the grandness of how everything was taken care of on a wondrous scale. This is also the home to a lot of Greek philosophy. Greeks basically had this notion of life. If I can't see it and touch it as being real, I should not trust it at all. That's basically how Americans are today as well. Are any of you by chance from, they say it, Missouri? Missouri? Oh, a bunch of Yankees, huh? <laughs> well, then you don't know that the motto of the state of Missouri is, it's the show-me state. They are incredulous. They don't believe anything unless you can lay it right out there in front of them. They can see it, touch it, handle it. Otherwise, Missourians, they don't believe nothing. You've got to prove it first. 
If you listened only to Luke's account of the ascension, you might get the notion that Jesus left everybody. He left them behind to go to heaven, seems to be the intent. That's why these other passages are so very important. In Ephesians, of all things, Paul, first of all, has us to understand that we're not by ourselves. Just because someone is not there that you can see and touch them doesn't mean they have left. If we look at Ephesians chapter 4, grace was given to each according to the measure of God's gift. Therefore, it is said he ascended on high and literally led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. But saying that he ascended, what does that mean? but that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is he who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Literally, fill all in all or everything in every way. There was an early church father in the second century who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. He made this comment about the presence of Jesus with every Christian. He said, The risen and ascended Lord Jesus is closer to you than your own soul. Think about that for a moment. You can't even wrap your mind around that concept. But he's saying that he's closer to you than you can possibly imagine. Closer than husband and wife, mother and child. Closer than anything we can possibly imagine. And what he says is very true. Jesus fills everything in every way. But if you trust only what you can see and perceive and understand, if you continue to make the grave error of doubting Thomas... You lose the blessings. If you think he has left you, you will think you are on your own. First of all, then, we have to understand on this Sunday after the ascension is that Jesus has not left us as orphans. He had said that earlier in the Gospel of John. And I quoted the passage to the children. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is closer to you than your own soul. But now let's get practical this morning. What does this exactly mean? Our text intends us to understand that we receive blessings as we have the faith to understand who's with you all the time. Remember, even in the Old Testament, he had the title Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Not only on our side, but also at our side. First of all, he says to us, we have grace that has been given to us according to the rich measure of Christ's gift. This grace is constantly with us even when you don't know it, perceive it, understand it, or feel it. This undeserved love is always at your side. Nothing should ever make you think that you've become unlovable or that God can't possibly care for you. This rich fullness of grace is constantly there. And if you believe that Jesus is ascended to be in charge for you, you'll also accept this gift 
of his grace. Besides, he is victorious. This year, just before Easter, we had the first little service on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. And part of that celebration is what's mentioned here. In a saying, he ascended, what does it mean that the, he also descended to the lowermost parts of the earth? That's referring to his descent into hell, wherein Peter were told that Jesus came there and proclaimed vigorously his great victory over Satan and all the minions of hell. He first showed his victory in the very place where he should have had no power. But he's victorious and reigns even in the depths of hell. That being the case, what have we got to worry about? If they can't lay a finger on him in hell, do you think any harshness, any real danger can happen to us here as he's with us all the time, proclaiming his victory on our behalf? We shouldn't be afraid of anything that we see or rumors we may hear. Christ is with us. Besides, he says that he led literally captivity captive. I don't know of any of you that have ever been arrested, and I'm not going to have a show of hands. I don't think any of you were captured in warfare. I would have heard those stories. But he says that he led captivity captive. Beautiful poetic way of describing how anything that would bind you, anything that would take control of your heart and life, anything that would rob you of being vigorous in living your life for Christ, any of those things have now been themselves taken captive. There is no captivity for you. It's only when you believe the things of this world, the things you can see, touch, and smell, only then you may be led captive by your own delusions. But he has taken captivity captive. What is for us to fear? And then he says he gave gifts to men. How many of you, you maybe years ago, you decided to start a bank account at some bank. Now, years ago, they used to do something. If you'd start a bank account at a bank, they would give you a gift. You'd get a toaster or a coaster or I'm not even sure anymore. Maybe a blender if you're really a big customer. Free isn't always free. But here it is charismata. Root word charis, meaning an undeserved gift. That's how Christ gives you gifts based on his grace, not based on what you have done or your merit or anything you've contributed. And literally it says he continues to give gifts to men. This again is a problem because we think of gifts only in terms of what we can see and handle. Even things that seem hard and painful can in the end be turned into a gift. Remember St. Paul who says that all things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even times that are hard and difficult are a way where God makes your faith stronger, and that truly is a gift. 
He continues to give gifts to us in His grace. I'm going to go on a little further than our text. I'm just going to tick off some of these other gifts that He gives. It says in verse 11, and His gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Those individuals have a job of proclaiming the reality of God's Word. Just as I told Jesse that she knows Jesus is ascended and with her only because the Scriptures say so. The first gifts have to do with God's Word being proclaimed. And for this purpose, it says, for the equipment of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The term equipment here is referring to battle equipment. Battle equipment against all of your assumptions based on what you can see and comprehend. But your Christian life is greater than that. The Word is giving you promises that transcend merely what is worldly. The battle equipment has to do with the gospel from God's own Word. For the work of ministry, diakonia, which means not serving yourself, which is what the world seems to think is the most important thing. And the world continues to gauge your success on how much stuff you acquire, how much power you have, how important you are to the world. But Christ's gift includes seeing that serving one another and serving God himself, these are the things that have real meaning and purpose. Otherwise, you'll be robbed by the delusions of the world around you for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We're here to help one another. I know you always sit kind of in the same places, don't you? Yep, sure enough. Although the Damsters, for some reason, decided to switch to the north side of church today, and I don't know how they can do that. I know where you sit. I know where you are. But we're to be serving one another even if we're not next to the persons that we're used to seeing, even to strangers. That's the thing we don't always see very well. And this is to continue, says Paul, until we all attain to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. The unity of faith means you believe always what the Scriptures say, not what your mind wants to tell you. And the knowledge here means clear, accurate, precise understanding of who Jesus is, how he gave his life for you, he rose and he ascended and is now not only at his Father's right hand, but also at your right hand to guard and bless and protect you. But also, he says, to mature manhood. Who does that? In our world, who helps little kids gain maturity to being adults? What day is this today? It's Mother's Day. This is not to say that fathers have nothing to do with this, but the one that has the most to do with it 
ends up being mom, who may sing, say things like, why don't you go outside and help dad do whatever his char- charge may be. Mother's Day is a celebration not only that God gives us mothers, but that they are Christian mothers who want to make us mature and responsible and loving toward other people. That's, again, a concept the world doesn't have any notion of anymore. No one cares except about things. People are to be used, the world says. We give thanks for Christian mothers, not only that they bring us to maturity, but also in maturity of faith, so that we're not overcome by our boo-boos and mistakes and screw-ups, but that we know about forgiveness. Where do you learn about forgiveness but from your mother? When my brother and I would do things we weren't supposed to do, and we knew that we weren't supposed to do it, and she knew we weren't supposed to do it, she would come out to us with a little ping-pong paddle. And she said, I'm going to teach you a lesson now of what you're not supposed to do anymore. And we'd immediately start crying. She hadn't laid a finger on us. And she'd say, take down your pants. We did, still crying, because we knew it was wrong. Her word told us it was wrong. And all she had to do was give us one little pop one little crack right back here. And then she'd say, pull up your pants. And then she'd do this. Because in spite of the correction, she would always say at the end, I love you. That's why I had to do this for you. I love you. And then she'd hold us nice and tight. That's what Christian mothers do. It's not only the discipline, it's the assurance of love that no matter how much you may mess up at times, no matter what age, the Christian mother is there to assure them of grace and continued love and care. And where do Christian mothers get that concept from? But from Christ himself. Our Lord Jesus is with us in order that we may have this maturity this full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be like little stupid kids. And that's what the Greek term means, napioi, not little stupid kids that are being tossed around to and fro, carried around with every quirky wind of doctrine and the cunning of men and craftiness of wiles. Jesus is constantly with us to gain us that maturity in our faith. So we're not little children anymore. These are the blessings that St. Paul says that our Lord intends to give to us. He has ascended to his Father's right hand and to our right side to continue to bless us and give us gifts which point us to eternal life. Amen.